Support for Prop G comes from ServiceNow. Seems everyone is talking about AI. The hype's everywhere. It's writing college essays, running earnings reports, and fabricating my voice so well that I'll no longer need to record podcast ads. Just kidding about the last one, but you know what's not a joke? ServiceNow's ability to put AI to work across your business. With their intelligent platform, you can improve customer experiences, help non-coders to code, accelerate your IT team's productivity, and resolve HR cases faster. So work can actually work better for everyone. So stop the hype and start putting AI to work. Go to servicenow.com slash genai to see why the world works with ServiceNow. Support for Prop G comes from ServiceNow. Seems everyone is talking about AI. The hype's everywhere. It's writing college essays, running earnings reports, and fabricating my voice so well that I'll no longer need to record podcast ads. Just kidding about the last one, but you know what's not a joke? ServiceNow's ability to put AI to work across your business. With their intelligent platform, you can improve customer experiences, help non-coders to code, accelerate your IT team's productivity, and resolve HR cases faster. So work can actually work better for everyone. So stop the hype and start putting AI to work. Go to servicenow.com slash genai to see why the world works with ServiceNow. Episode 109, the atomic number for mitnerium, an extremely radioactive synthetic element. Who has three thumbs and just came back from Chernobyl? This guy. Okay, okay. That's what we're working with. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 109th episode of the Prop G Pod. In today's episode, we speak with entrepreneur and investor Mark Cuban. Mark is one of the main sharks on ABC's Shark Tank, and he's also the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. That's a pretty good rap. Shark Tank owns a basketball team. It's a good rap. It's a good rap. We discuss a range of topics, including the crypto space, potential SEC regulations, and the streaming industry. Okay. Okay. What's going on? Let's dial in with the dog. Let's let the tail wag the dog, and then the dog is going to wag this bitch we call a podcast. There's a lot happening in the streaming wars. Squid Game has helped Netflix cement its place as the global leader in content, and other streaming players need to bust a bold move, in my view, before Netflix reaches escape velocity from the competition. They had it to themselves, and everyone came in, and it feels as if Netflix is starting to sort of pull away again, or at least that's what I would I would posit. I would speculate, I would put forward, I would put in the bowl and see if you turn your nose up at it. We covered the streaming landscape in our newsletter, No Mercy, No Malice, which you'll find a link to in our show notes or by visiting profgalloway.com. That's original, isn't it? Prof Galloway. Came up with that myself. What a shocker. What a shocker it wasn't taken. Anyways, but today we want to talk about a big, bold move that we believe, we believe is going to happen, and that is we believe Comcast is going to acquire Discovery, the newly formed company that will also house Warner Media's golden child, HBO. I've always thought HBO is this incredible trophy asset that everyone from Apple and Amazon to some someone out of the Gulf or somebody would say this is the ultimate sports team trophy asset, uh, and it would go for a huge number. Anyways, AT&T should have never owned it. We know that. And to its credit, recognized that and spun it to Discovery for a mix of cash and equity. But in order to ensure that they got the maximum price possible, there's something that is kind of the key here, and that is the new Discovery will inherit AT&T's legacy shareholder base, which wants a dividend and isn't up for the growth, I don't don't imagine, and most importantly, see above the one key feature that no one's 
looked at is that it is a single class of shares. Most media companies claim that they're so important that they need two classes of shares. What that really is is a family that decides that they don't want true corporate governance, that they, they want this addictive substance called control to maintain uh, in their hands. And so they create two classes of shares where even though they may own only 10% of the company, they have 51% of the voting power. And it's not really democracy. It's not one person, one vote or one share, one vote. It's all the shares vote until it matters. And then the controlling shareholder gets to make the decisions. Why is this bad? Because whenever you separate authority from accountability, things come off the track. So for example, the Ford family, I think owns a very small percentage of Ford at this point, but they control the company. The Sulzbergers own about, I think about 15% of the New York Times. But when a thoughtful yet impressive young man comes in with 19% of the company, they don't listen to him. They don't listen to him. See above what happened to me from 2006 to 2008, where I took $400 million of other people's money and went into the street and literally set it on fire. Oh, that wasn't stressful. That wasn't stressful. My oldest son had had the poor judgment to come screaming out of my girlfriend. And just about the time I was losing a shit ton of money, other people's money, and including my own, fighting with a family who just kind of looked at me and said, boss, we're in charge. Um, I don't know, how do we say this in the most Pulitzer tone? Go fuck yourself. Anyways, now what I'm here to talk about, you're going to have essentially probably the most important, some of the most important media assets in the world that could be acquired. Disney and Netflix are too expensive at this point. And if you think about where Discovery might be, uh, effectively, you're going to have a this sort of mishmash of shareholders. And that is, you'll have legacy shareholders from AT&T, the one slow growth, but a dividend, and then the streaming shareholders that want growth. And probably at least once in the next three or four quarters, the company will provide uh, neither. And that is, it won't produce profits, but it won't show a lot of subscriber growth. I think the market is going to throw up and this thing is going to be in play again. And you're going to see HBO have a third owner in as many years. Discovering's first half revenue is up 12% from last year to $3 billion. That sounds pretty impressive until you realize it's just a fifth of Netflix's uh, first half revenue and is still dependent upon advertising through its linear channels. So it's not really even apples to apples. Put another way, AT&T shareholders may still be in consensual hallucination that you can have AT&T profits with Netflix-like growth. You can't. You absolutely can. And the shareholders aren't ready for the staggering investments that are required to get to sort of a Netflix OTT-like growth in production budgets. Uh, and you're going to need this transition period that will likely involve some blood and some nausea. Specifically, the stock is going to get, in my opinion, volatile and get hit. And then who will, who will, what will happen? What's the scenario? Discovery misses a quarter, as companies do. And the shareholder base realizes this is not the guy they thought they were marrying, and they bail. The stock takes a hit and invites a new older suitor, a charming man. My mom was single for a long time. I used to have strange men show up, and I'd be like, Dad, are you my new dad? Just kidding, I didn't say that. Uh, but anyways, the inamorado here will be from Philadelphia. Inamorado, isn't that a great word? That means suitor. That means suitor. I did synonym search and pulled that word up, and I'm very proud of it. Anyways, the new dude will be from Philadelphia, and he's rough around the edges, but he's rich. He can buy me a new Bane skateboard, right? Or give me money to go to the movies to get me out of the house and leave him him and mom alone. Anyways, Comcast has the capital and the backbone. You know, the Roberts family are billionaires. More than that, they're billionaires from Philadelphia, which means at some point uh, in the past, they most likely have, I don't know, what's the term? Killed people. You don't fuck with billionaires from Philadelphia. 
Anyways, they likely already realized that their homegrown effort, Peacock, uh, is just not working. It's like fighting panzer tanks on horseback. And as exciting as Pam from The Office and Chuck Todd are, they can't compete with Jon Snow or The Mandalorian. Uh, it's just not working. Or even Wanda from WandaVision. So what's going on here? The the streaming wars are really heating up. Uh, there's so much capital that's gone into the U.S. market. If you think about Netflix basically had Greenfield into kind of 2015, 16. Now the deepest pockets in the world are coming and Netflix, which is arguably, I would argue, maybe one of the two or three best managed companies in the world right now, they really saw around the corner and they said, I know, let's build a 10,000-person strong creative unit in Madrid and start producing global content that's local, global. What do we mean by that? We like to think in America that we're the home of innovation and everybody wants to see some American dude in tights and a cape uh, roaming around the streets of Gotham, when in fact, uh, people in South Korea love Parasite or they love dramas that feel like the Hunger Games, but are distinctly Korean and in Korean, uh, in the Korean language. By the way, uh, Korean on Duolingo or people learning Korean has spiked since the Squid Games. I don't know, it's because people want to do their own Squid Games or they're fascinated with Korean culture. But let's be clear, the South Korean creative community is really strong. And they haven't had the resources or the deep pockets of a NASDAQ-backed content company or a Hollywood-financed content company, but they want local content. And Netflix is doing an amazing job of making a massive investment. They saw that the U.S. was going to be overinvested, which drives down returns. Everything is an asset class. And when it gets overinvested, it drives down returns. The U.S. streaming market is overinvested. Everyone has a lot of streaming networks. There are 350 million people, 150 million households. We're running out of households to sell streaming to, and it's massively overinvested. So Netflix recognized this about a decade ago, or at least five years ago, and has started making huge investments in what I call global content. So by far the most search content in history, in history, is Squid Games. And what was their other big hit? Two of their five biggest hits now. One is Squid Games. The other one, Money Heist. And so we used to have, it's just ridiculous, we used to have the Academy Awards Best Foreign Film. Now we're just going to have Best Film. And guess what? It's probably, as was Parasite, uh, there's a good chance it's increasingly going to come from beyond U.S. shores. So where are we? You have Apple and Amazon who are kind of like rich kids who will always land on their feet. Basically, it's great to have it's great to have dad be a billionaire. An example of that is Ted Lasso is a cute show, uh, maybe even more than cute, really nice. I'm enjoying it. But let's be honest, it's just not historic. And if it was on Hulu, it would have been this nice little cult series that would have got no traction. But because it's on a billion iOS devices, or specifically Apple TV Plus is on a billion iOS devices, which by the way, it takes three clicks to begin playing Apple TV Plus content, Ted Lasso, on your iPhone. It takes 17 on Netflix. Uh, It's nice to own the rails. It's nice to have really rich parents. Amazon's the same way. They've got unbelievable distribution, so they'll be fine. I think the dark horse here, actually, or the kid, the kind of the underachiever, the really smart kid who, who's just sort of understated and quietly like killing it all the time. I think that's Roku. Uh, I think this is an incredibly interesting company. They went in and bought all the content. They're verticalizing. They went in and bought all the content from Quibi for ten cents on the dollar. Still might have overpaid. Still might have overpaid. But they are—they're kind of the little engine that keeps killing it and is now getting into content. I wouldn't be surprised if Comcast maybe goes after Roku. It just feels like they are the kind of underachiever, if you will. They're the humanoid or the person in Logan's Run that supposedly made it out of that centrifugal thing where everyone blew up, which actually wasn't the case. No one made it out. Great movie, Farrah Fawcett's theatrical uh, high point. Uh, Not that there were a ton. What was that guy's name? Michael York? He was dreamy. He was dreamy. 
Anyways, Logan's Run, look it up. Read the book. One of the first times when I was in high school, I read a book and then watched the movie. Anyways, uh, you have Roku, you have Amazon, you have Apple, you have uh, Netflix, which is, in my opinion, just just so visionary, so well run. Uh, Disney shows up, Disney Plus shows up like LeBron James, and that is they have all the assets, best assets in the world. They're LeBron James in junior high school. This this kid can dunk, has unbelievable strength, uh, but but the kid is still 13 and lacks coordination. Specifically, Disney has the premier set of assets and skills in the world between their cruise lines, their content library, their parks, unmatched uh, assets and characters. And yet there's no coordination. It runs like, Disney runs like an ad for Salesforce or what Salesforce should do for Disney. And that is create connective tissue such that when I watch The Mandalorian over and over, they figure out that, hey, maybe I'm into Star Wars. And, oh, hey, maybe I have 14, 11-year-old boys. And, hey, maybe if they figured out a way to send me an email saying, do you want to come to Galaxy's Edge for the opening? I'd go, yeah, I'll pretty much do anything for that, including enter into a long-term monogamous relationship with Disney, not plus, Disney squared. For God's sakes, Disney plus could have the most impressive recurring revenue bundle in the world. Oh, maybe I'd like to go on Star Wars themed cruises, but I don't know about them because you're not communicating to me. You're literally getting absolutely no signal liquidity. Bring in the, I, I, anyway, drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. Uh, Disney is LeBron. And then who else is in the system? Then you have Hulu. I don't know what the fuck's going to happen to Hulu. Maybe Hulu's kind of like, yeah, it's nice. It's amazing they got everyone to play together. Sort of a lesson for the pandemic. If you can get Fox and Disney and these guys to get along, maybe we should figure out a way for all of us to get along and try and fi- figure out a way to cooperate, I don't know, on vaccines or sharing vaccines or on health mandates. Call me crazy. Competitive advantages of species, our cooperation, which we've decided to put aside, which we've decided to put aside at exactly the wrong moment. Also, also a player, a player is going to show up here that we're not expecting. Who is it? Who's the new content player? The swoosh. If someone had said there's going to be a original scripted series uh, 10 years ago, right? Someone came up to you 10 years ago and said there's going to be an original scripted series about a football coach from the U.S. who goes to the U.K. and coaches a Premier League team, and it's a huge global phenomena. And they said, all right, now you have to guess, is that content going to be produced by Nike or Apple? I would bet nine out of 10 people would have said Nike. Nike was producing the best content in the world with their commercials and, oh, has some of the greatest assets in the world, specifically their athletes. Why the fuck are they? ESPN is putting out content talking about the dream season of the Bulls. I thought that shit was so boring. I know, maybe it's because I'm just not into sports, but everyone's like, oh, you got to watch it. Uh, the Last Dance, whatever it's called. Jesus, snoozerama. Anyways, Nike is going to get into content. They've got also got a quarter of a trillion dollar market capitalization. They're running out of people to run, sell shoes to. They need absolutely to get into content. By the way, they should kick Tim Cook off their board. What the fuck are they doing with Apple on their board? Apple's coming for their lunch. Wake up, Nike. Anyway, in sum, Netflix goes global. Disney grows into its content body. HBO ends up with a third owner in as many years. Roku takes off its glasses and all of a sudden is the hot girl. Hey, oh my God, check out Roku. The swoosh shows up with sports content and Amazon and Apple continue to underwhelm, but eventually land on their feet as they were born into privilege. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Mark Cuban to discuss the crypto space, investing, and why he's bullish on AI. Support for Prop G comes from Fundrise. You know the adage, buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You're going to add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com PropG. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Support for our show comes from Sonos. Usually when we read ads for the show, I get a whole page of talking points they want me to hit. But get this, Sonos sends me their latest portable speaker, Move 2, and no script. They just want me to share with you what I honestly think of it. And after listening to the speaker, I get why Sonos is so confident that I'd have good things to say. It's fantastic. It's incredible that this kind of fidelity and acoustics and sound comes from such a little device. I mean, it really packs a punch. And also, I have been buying Sonos for 10 or 15 years now. I know the CEO. I know people uh, that work there. They're just good people and a nice company, and they make an outstanding product. The battery life of Move 2 is so good, giving you up to 24 hours of playback. And because it's weather and drop resistant, you can bring it anywhere. Just think of all the places you could listen to this podcast. What a thrill. Seriously, you won't believe how good I sound on this speaker. Every stream counts, people. Come on, come on, invest in this relationship. To learn more about Move2 and other Sonos speakers, visit Sonos.com. That's S-O-N-O-S.com. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with serial entrepreneur and investor, Mark Cuban. Mark, where does this podcast find you? I'm in Dallas, Texas. Nice. I don't, I, I don't, know, I don't know much about kind of your upbringing or your background. Can you give us the cliff notes on, on sure. Mark Cuban, kind of sub-25? Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the South Hills. My dad did upholstery on cars. My, my mom did um, odd jobs never went to college and basically just was a blue collar upbringing. And my dad mm-hmm. was always somebody who was like, if you want something, you're going to have to get it. He would take me to work. He did, you know, like I said, he did upholstery on cars. He's like, this is what I don't want you to do as a profession and mm-hmm. don't want you to have with your life. So you're going to go to college and we'll figure it out. And went to um, pit dropped out of high school because they wouldn't let me take the senior level business classes, started taking um, college classes at Pitt at night my junior year, went there mm-hmm. full-time my senior year. They didn't have a full-time business school, so I saw a list of the top 10 undergrad business schools, and Indiana was the cheapest, so I ended up there. And broadcast, was it broadcast.com? That kind of changed yeah. everything for you, right? Yeah, I mean, my um, actually, things had changed before then. Um, when I got out to Dallas, I got a job at night working as a bartender. And then um, eventually got a job working at a software store. And as part of that, I taught myself how to code. And nine months in, I got fired and started a company called Micro Solutions. And things just connected for me. And we became one of the very first local area network systems integrators way back in the 80s. And so I grew that to about 35, 36 million in sales, 80 employees, sold that for $6 million. Um, netted after paying out to employees and a partner about two million. Started mm-hmm. trading stocks and just crushed it, crushed mm-hmm. it, um, and turned that into a hedge fund that I sold within ninety days and kept on trading stocks until. So I sold that company in like nineteen ninety, and over the next five years traded stocks, did well as I said, made a lot of money, 
And then in 90, early, early 95, a buddy of mine came to me, Todd Wagner, and said, look, you know, this new internet thing is happening. You're a networking and tech guy. There's got to be a way where we can listen to Indiana basketball down in Dallas instead of putting a radio next to a speakerphone. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, at that point in time, nobody was streaming. And that effectively was the start of the commercial streaming industry. Built that up where, you know, we were the largest by far. It wasn't even close. Went public in 1998, had the biggest IPO in the history of the stock market at the time, and then sold it to Yahoo. Um, sold it for stock and then collared it, I guess I should include, so that when the Internet bubble burst, I ended up doing fine and, and actually get, came out ahead. And so let's fast forward 20 odd years here. I'm being generous. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, I'd love to get- 18 years actually. There you go. Um, <laughs> I'd love to get your thoughts or your sort of meta view on the collision between markets and assets and payments that is crypto. You're starting a company or launching something called Fireside. So give us the meta view of your viewpoint on cryptocurrencies and what Fireside will be doing. Well, Fireside's completely separate. Think of Fireside is more of a, a tactile content creation platform. Yep. So if we were doing this live um, and we had an audience, obviously, then they would be able to you know, hit a, a clap button and you and I would be able to hear clapping when, when the audience was responding to something we said or silence hmm. if they weren't. Because one of the challenges of doing something like this um, is that you don't have any real feedback. You think can't you know how room. people yeah, yeah. You can't read the room. That's the best yeah. way to put it. And that's what Fireside solves. It allows you to read the room. And then you can simulcast that into any number of platforms um, and simulcast out to the world. So that's what Fireside Chat is about. Crypto is a, a completely different beast. Um, crypto reminds me of 1995 when we started AudioNet, which turned into broadcast.com and the streaming biz. Um, and it's not so much by, uh, about all the tokens and all the trading and all the frenzy that's going around. That mm-hmm. reminds me more of the internet stock market. But what's interesting to me about crypto is the actual networking platforms themselves and the ability to connect with smart contracts. So what we see with the NFT um, explosion and Mm -hmm. the explosion of the digital collectibles market is really a byproduct of smart contracts, which are just programmatic in in a language called Solidity for the most part or compatible languages, which allow people to create applications. And the low-hanging fruit for those applications right now is NFTs. But you'll be able to, you know, if you think of NFTs as a proof of concept, we'll be able to take that into any number of applications. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that with decentralized finance, which effectively is personal banking. You'll see it as, um, you know, with textbooks. You're you're a prof and and you've written textbooks, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you look at what's happening in the textbook industry over the years, you know, they're so expensive and they have to be because there's no opportunity to participate in all the resale. And so if you turned any of the Scott Galloway textbooks into an NFT, then after I took Scott's class, I would be able to resell it as an NFT and Scott would be able to earn a royalty because that's part of the smart contract. And you can set that royalty to 5%, 10%, 25% or 50%. And every time that textbook was sold to future students taking your class, you would earn that royalty as opposed to now where they go online, send it to a used bookstore and you don't participate at all. It sounds like whenever I speak to someone such as yourself that is is up to speed and and smart and has insight around crypto, it feels like a giant buy signal for Ethereum. I start yeah. hearing. Go ahead. 
I, I agree because, you know, the buy signals come from the application. So let, let's right. take Ethereum out of the equation. Yep. Um, what is going to drive utilization of crypto? It's 100% the applications. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at NFTs you and you look at DeFi, decentralized finance, that's, you know, you'll buy Ethereum if the, the DeFi you're doing is on the Ethereum network. Mm -hmm. You'll buy Ethereum if you're buying NFTs on the Ethereum network. If you're buying them on the Polygon network, if you're buying them on the Solana network, that's where you'll buy um, those tokens. Mm -hmm. And so it's the application that drives demand for the tokens because you need the tokens in order to participate. And so right now what's happening, we're in this death war between blockchains. Mm -hmm. And so they're all copying each other, just like websites copied each other, you know, back in the day with, with um, the internet. So you'll see Solano launching NFTs and actually paying people to come in and put their NFTs out on Solano. You'll see, you know, Polygon, you'll see Cardano, you'll see Palm. They're all doing the exact same thing and trying to replicate the applications. And that's a sign that there's going to be challenges and not all these blockchains are going to survive. And it's really going to be the applications and the innovation that are going to drive it, just like has happened in the early days of the internet. So is it you you have said that you think sort of Bitcoin is kind of the reserve currency of crypto or the safe haven. Do you think it's a small number of players, a consolidation? Do you think it shifts? Where do you think it's I think it's, it's a store of value just like gold. Yeah. Right. I think the the Bitcoin maxis, the people who eat, sleep, and breathe Bitcoin and think it's going to save the world, they believe that it's a reserve currency and that you know, when fiat crumbles for whatever mm -hmm. reason, that Bitcoin will slide right in as the white knight. I don't see that at all. I see, you know, if you look at the at how people perceive gold and how gold is sold, it's sold as as a hedge against the apocalypse, right? It's sold mm -hmm. as a hedge against inflation, but it never acts as a hedge. And when there's things yeah. that look really bad, like a pandemic, it doesn't really respond. And I think Bitcoin is the same way. Both Bitcoin and gold react to supply and demand. And the more people that are selling Bitcoin, the higher the price is going to go. Supply and demand, as you know, is undefeated. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, Bitcoin is purely a supply and demand um, play. What, I'm curious, what's your take on Coinbase? Is it Amazon and it's the ultimate marketplace or is it AOL? Does it eventually get kind of like starched out of existence? Too early to tell. Yeah, too yeah. early to tell. It really depends on how they respond to everything. I mean, AOL stayed a wall garden and that hurt them. Amazon opened up to third parties and Amazon really is, you know, what Amazon does better than anybody is eat their own dog food and then and commercialize it. And so, you know, if we see Coinbase creating new products and rolling them out and mm -hmm. opening it all up. Okay, then, you know, we'll take one viewpoint of Coinbase. If they continue to, you know, have everything inside their walled, gar walled garden, you know, it creates another perspective. But Brian Armstrong is smart. And so, you know, he's seen all this as much as we have. So I'm sure he's, he's paying close attention and to, to how his customers are reacting. So where are you investing in crypto? Are you investing in the, the kind of the big three coins or, or uh, the picks and shovels? Mostly in applications. So I yeah. own a lot of Bitcoin. I own more by a factor of almost three Ethereum. Mm -hmm. um, I own Polygon Matic, um, but I bought, you know, a lot of these I bought really early and they've mm -hmm. appreciated significantly. Um, my most recent investment was one called Klima, K-L-I-M-A. Um, and what it is, is it connects a 
a token to climb a token to um, BCT, which is a token that represents carbon offsets. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to create a market, a fluid market for carbon offsets that's easily tradable and easily placeable on a balance sheet. So by buying some of the Klima in order, by investing in this company and their tokens early, in order to make them tradable, I have to go and buy effectively 5 million tons of carbon offsets in Mm -hmm. order to trade them. And to me, it's, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty associated with it, but worst case, I'm buying a whole lot of carbon offsets and, right. and that's not a bad thing. And I think if this can become a liquid market, it makes it really easy. So, you know, while all the arguments are, will you put Bitcoin on your balance sheet? Well, let's put some BCT or some Clima on our balance sheet because that's our easy way to buy carbon offsets. And if you think about as an asset class and regulation, do you think that do you think the SEC needs to come in and there needs to be more clarity and more regulation, or they should just stay the heck out of the way and kind of let let a thousand flowers bloom, so to speak? Yeah, um, I was just watching Secession last night. That's where I heard yeah. that. Um, <laughs> yeah, there you um, go. But um, I think for stable coins, they absolutely have to come in because stable coins has taken on a definition of it being pegged to the dollar when in reality, there's a lot of derivatives and variables um, mm-hmm. associated with every stable coin. Um, they may be pegged to the dollar, they may be algorithmic, they may be misleading and saying they're pegged to the dollar or having dollar or cash equivalents and not having those. And because there's just so much money there, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in stable coins, if one of these was a Ponzi scheme or if one of them was just a fraud, that would create some significant instability. And so I think they're gonna have to regulate there and just say, look, if you are saying you're pegged to the dollar, you have to have a dollar and you have to um, confirm and conform. In terms of Bitcoin, I think they can leave it alone just like they leave gold alone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a store of value. Same with Ethereum. Um, And I think from there, and I'm not trying to say, okay, these guys are safe and the others are not. Mm -hmm. I think from there, it really, comes down to what each application or what each network does because they're they're all this is not when you saw talk about crypto it's just not one unified environment where everybody's exactly the same and there's just different branding you know they're all different in their own way and they're all have a different sales pitch in terms of how they can be used and those tokens sometimes represent a share of revenue they represent a share of transactions through liquidity provisioning there's just so many variances that I think will get to the point where it's like pink sheets and over-the-counter stocks, OTC stocks, which are basically unregulated other than having to file some basic regulatory um, balance sheet and income statement um, paperwork. And then you'll have the, the NYSE and the NASDAQ of blockchain tokens as well. So that if a, a token provider, whatever the, the platform, wants to really be considered authentic and um, well vetted and audited, then you pay the money to list on the equivalent of the NASDAQ you know, or an SEC um, approved platform. And if you choose not to, you, you know, you're a freedom fighter and you don't think you should, you should have to, then you go unlisted and you know, it's buyer beware. So let's switch gears. You're obviously, you were sort of an early pioneer in streaming. 
Curious to get your thoughts on the current market, uh, OTT, winners, losers, any thoughts around the biggest players, who you think will uh, surprise the upside or the downside, and then we'll talk a little bit about kind of sports and streaming. Sure. Um, content's content. And there are certain mm-hmm. companies that have great feel for content. You know, there's the Marvels slash Disney's, there's Netflix, there's Showtime, there's HBO. And those, those companies know how to create great content. And what's changed with the streaming world right now is that you just need a lot more of it in order to get and retain subscribers. If you look at Disney and Netflix, they started at different times, but their approach was the exact same, where it came down to archives, right? Who has the greatest size library and who has library with demand? Netflix went out and bought all this under-monetized content and built this huge library that got people started on Netflix. Disney had their huge library and was able to you know, implement that for their streaming initiative. And they both attracted a, a ton of users. And, and whether it's those two or Hulu, et cetera, whoever has that great feel for producing content and producing hits is going to survive because the greatest challenge is the seasonality and churn. And whoever does that will gain new market share. But I think the the leaders are so good at it that I don't think any of them are going to really stumble per se. And it feels as if sports, I mean, while the the big guys or the biggest players have dipped their toe into sports, are we, it, it's taken longer than I would have thought. I, I would have thought by now that Amazon would be broadcasting March Madness or the Super Bowl. Do you think that's coming? I think eventually, but you have to look at the incumbents and why, right. you know, the importance of sports to their platform. Then yep. you're broadcasting you know, it's declining. Like Shark Tank is winning the night in the the demo, 18 to 49, but overall viewing is down 21% Mm -hmm. across the board. And sports really, particularly football, is what's keeping people on the platform. And so there almost is no amount that they won't pay in order to keep sports because they need to keep their subscribers year round. And that's the beauty I think that we'll be able to offer eventually to these platforms. So some of the platforms, maybe it's Amazon that maybe doesn't um, have the hit generation capabilities that the others do and they wanna Mm -hmm. keep their churn down or if Hulu or even Disney um, with ESPN decides, okay, it's cheaper to fill a library with sports content than it is to always try to create a hit. I think that's where you're going to start to see the big streaming platforms over the next few years say, you know what, maybe it's worth it to outbid the traditional linear platforms. And that, I think, could not only lead to us being on those platforms, but the demise of even greater demise of the linear platforms. And when you when you think about looking back or actually I would just love I think of you as more of like, you know, you're obviously an entrepreneur on a sports team you know, media mogul with Shark Tank, but I think of you as a commentator and I'd love to get your, just your, you have a kind of a fresh take on stuff. I'd like to throw just some stuff at you and get your kind of headline sure. news. So the supply chain, call it the constipation in the supply chain. What, what do you think are the ramifications there? Are we missing anything? No, I think it's short term, not short term, it's medium term, right? Because yep. it's painful in the interim when it happens. Um, look, there was no planning for what happened. And mm-hmm. a lot of companies, didn't expect the the demand that they got and you know a lot of shipping and transport and 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 um, logistics company didn't expect it and dialed down and it, we got the exact opposite um, response and demand and that's a conflict and that's that's hard to scale you know as as 
as people who talk to entrepreneurs all the time, you and I, what, what's one of the things we say all the time? You can be a victim of success. You know, if, if you're not able to, to scale and, and meet demand, um, then you're going to have challenges. You may lose customers. You're going and typically you might raise your pricing. And that's what's happening in the supply chain as well. You know, they they dial down and now they're a victim of, of their own success. But the market will take care of that. You know, there'll be alternatives. There'll be um different um, locations for manufacturing. We'll see automation deal with it as mm -hmm. well. So it's not fixing the supply chain problem isn't just about fixing the supply chain. It's introducing new ways to be productive so you, that you limit your exposure to the supply chain. You've been mentioned often as a potential political candidate. What is What are your thoughts around America's response uh, economically, politically to the pandemic? I think economically, well, Politically put that aside, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's all a shit show. And yeah. so there, there's no way to defend it or discuss it in, yeah. in normal terms. But economically, I think, you know, spending was the right thing to do. I mean, I yeah. think, you know, the the stimulus payments were the right thing to do. Um, I think some of the protections were the right thing to do. It's unfortunate it became a political football, but... Right now, the you know, if someone in March 2020, when the stock market collapsed and everybody was wondering what was coming next, if someone would say, you know, okay, it's going to be 18 months, but we'll be down under 5% employment, GDP growth will be at 6%, we'll have some inflation because companies made mistakes in supply chain, but I think we'd all take that. Yeah, we take that trade. Do you think there's any any concern that we bailed out everything and everyone and as a result didn't give the kind of opportunities to a younger generation that you or my generation got, whether it was a dot bomb or 2008, you could pick up stuff uh, for, you know, on sale. Nothing's on sale now. Everything's just gone up in price. No, it's the exact opposite. I think um, it's the exact opposite. Um, mm -hmm. I think Gen Z in particular and to a lesser extent millennials mm -hmm. are so in tune with what's going on around them and communicate so well with each other and share ideas with each other that they're aware of the crypto um, explosion, right? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't surprise me. And actually, there's a company that I advise called Civic Science that does a lot of online polling. And I asked them to see if there's any correlation and causation between the 3% of people who quit their jobs in August and the explosion in cryptocurrency valuations. Mm -hmm. Because we're, we may not be seeing people with appreciable assets in the stock market, but we are seeing people with appreciable assets in crypto. Um, and if you just look at the communities that get built, you know, we saw it some with Wall Street bets, but there's even bigger and stronger communities built around low-cost crypto. And I, you're, you're seeing millions and millions of people who are investing because it's it's really simple and easy and far cheaper and simpler than investing in stocks. And so I don't think we fully understand the impact that crypto has had. I mean, we're talking about globally a $2.5 trillion market cap for crypto. You know, that's real money. It's global and we don't know how much of that is US based, but, I, it, you know, just based off anecdotally interfacing with people and online and in, in real life, it's not a small number of people that have invested in crypto and it's appreciated for just about everybody. Yeah, and when you think about it, it sounds big, but it's about the same as the market cap of one company, Apple. It yeah, feels I know. Like yeah, it's, well, uh, I was trying around. to put, think of a ratio, but you're right. I mean, at Apple and you know the, the top three or four companies, it, it's relatively small, but the point of entry is relatively low. 
And I think that's what's changed considerably. Robinhood's done a lot of good, contrary to what I think a lot of people think with the gamification, you know, because the only, in my opinion, the only way we're going to close the gap for income inequality isn't so much by trying to take a hammer and smash everybody down because there's no efficient way to get that money down to people who need it most. But mm -hmm. it really is about um, creating or enabling um, appreciable assets to the people who don't otherwise have anything. You know, and I think we're, if we look at it as an economic question, um, the marginal cost for the most valuable appreciable assets and the, the assets with the most upside stocks and let's say crypto, the marginal cost to create any of them is zero. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not in, infeasible that particularly for Gen Z, they're starting to understand that this is a wholesale change in how to create wealth and that you can participate in token drops. And, you know, you can even go to Coinbase and just by going through all the educational programs, I, I did it just as I was learning some of this. And now I've got mm -hmm. like three or $4,000 worth of crypto that they gave to me for free that's in my Coinbase account. And so kids are realizing this. And so, you know, we've got to understand this as a country and enable it even more. And so, you know, we require social security numbers to work. We should require digital accounts for everybody. And, you mm -hmm. know, we needed to do, you know, when we did the, um, when we gave everybody checks, we, it was hard to give millions of people their checks. Mm -hmm. That's just crazy in every which way, shape and form. And, you know, you can, you can say a lot of bad things about Robin Hood and their peers, its peers, but it enables at a very, very low cost for anybody, whatever the minimum age is, 13 or 18, whatever it is, to be able to own an appreciable asset for a dollar. Mm -hmm. And if everybody had an equivalent account, it's not inconceivable that you could take S&P 500 Satoshis, right, to use Bitcoin terminologies, but fractional percentages of an S&P 500 index fund and just give everybody some, you know, at birth, you know, or there's just so many different ways. And obviously I'm hypothesizing all this, but getting appreciable assets into the hands of people with a digital account that they're you know, that's created for them when they are born changes the whole dynamic of how people accumulate wealth and starts to change the conversation on income inequality. Coming up after the break. If you look at the top 10 market cap companies in the world, you know, what separates them is their ability to use AI. They're great at AI. We literally have bifurcated into an economy of companies that are great at AI and everybody else. Stay with us. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for Prop G comes from NetSuite. Growth is an inevitable part of any great business, but with growth comes growing pains. Suddenly, the things you're used to doing a day are taking a week. But there are three numbers that can help you get the visibility and control that you need to make the right business decisions instantly. 
37,025. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down expenses. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs and one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash profg. That's netsuite.com slash profg to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash profg. So go back, go back 30 odd years. You're Mark Cuban coming out of the University of Indiana. Talk a little bit about the certification or the skills that you would suggest that young people recognizing there's no one size fits all uh, that you would suggest or you would you would pursue and what industries you would be looking at investing your own human capital in. Today? Yeah, advice to your advice to your 22-year-old self. Yeah. So coming out today, AI, 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 crypto, crypto, crypto. So what do you mean by AI? Artificial intelligence can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but the ability to understand artificial, all the different flavors of artificial intelligence is going to be Mm -hmm. critical. If you look at the top 10 market cap companies in the world, you know, what separates them is their ability to use AI. They're great at AI. We literally have bifurcated into an economy of companies that are great at AI and everybody else Mm -hmm. because AI is hard. And 99% of the time when people talk, discuss AI, you know, and they discuss algorithms, they're talking if this, then that in a spreadsheet, as Mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, deep learning models and neural network models that are basically become black boxes where the people who are creating those models don't even know what the output's going to be. And trying to understand how to make these things and do these things is how business is going to be done. And so you don't have to to, uh, be a a computer programmer to be good at AI, but you have to be curious and you have to invest a lot of time. It's not necessarily difficult. It's just time consuming. But I mean, I I ask this question sincerely. The only example of AI I can think of is the Netflix recommendation engine that says I should watch episode two of The Queen's Gambit in three, two, one distill it down to specific applications of AI and then how you prepare, like, what does that mean? What do I do with that as a young person? Do I get into STEM? Do I figure out ways to apply AI? Do I try and go to work for a tech company where I can get more data and then figure out a way to use that data to make the product better? I mean, a recommendation engine obviously is one thing, Mm -hmm. but, you know, going through a, um, with machine learning, which is more linear, let's just Mm -hmm. say, Historically, if you were looking at investments, you know, biology, whatever it may be, you kind of tend to work with people who have a good feel, right? An innate feel for that industry. So you're, Mm -hmm. you know, you're in marketing, right? What makes a good marketing projection or what makes a good marketing choice? And you'd point to people and said, well, this person, you know, only knew, he knew only 50% of his marketing, his advertising work, didn't know which one. Well, there's some people who knew which half worked. That's changed now where you can start inputting almost an unlimited number of variables and look to see what works, mm-hmm. right? And so we've gone from feel to data mining, if you will, 
where AI will be able to look for, using machine learning, be able to look for commonalities and spit out things that otherwise we would never see. But in terms of how you get there, the, the best place to, to start is, you know, just try applications yourself. Mm-hmm. Like when I wanted to learn more, I literally got the book Machine Learning for Dummies and I put the, you know, I, I got my, you know, warmed up on my Python and the PyTorch and all the different things, the tools you need and put together a little database of NBA players and all these different parameters, you know, what's their wingspan, what's their height, what's the, you know, how did they do? And here, you know, here's my definition of success. And I, then I put in some rookies to see, okay, who do I think we should draft? Now, it didn't do a very good job because I wasn't really willing to go through all the iterations to optimize it, but it gave me a great understanding. I went and looked at a a, a YouTube video on how to create a neural network, a three-layer neural network using JavaScript. Didn't have a lot of utility, but it made me understand exactly how it works. Then, you know, I was able to apply all these things. And so what I say to all kids in school, coming out of school, whatever it may be, you know, be curious. Be curious Mm -hmm. about AI because it's changing every day and love to learn because the greatest skill you're ever going to have is not only being curious, but having a thirst for knowledge that a lot that encourages you to go out and learn these things. Because if we're not keeping up every single day, we're falling behind. And Mm -hmm. when you're in a world where it's changing rapidly, every day is an opportunity. And the more you learn, the, the better, better position you'll be in. Now, not everybody's got that piss and vinegar in them to just dig in and spend, you know, 10 straight hours putting together, mm-hmm. you know, a, a little machine learning model. But, you know, for, for kids who really want to get into it, science is great. STEM is great. But those are all just, you know, feeders for curiosity and, and learning. And if you love to learn, you're going to be great in AI. I feel like that people always talk about curiosity and grit. And I feel like these are things that you can you kind of have or you don't, or they're they're more fundamental than the classes you take. You have three kids. What advice do you have for parents in terms of and we struggle with this a lot around here, yep. trying to instill a sense of grit when quite frankly, I always say if I had what my kids have, I wouldn't have what I have. Exactly right. Oh, no, it, it drives me crazy. It's really difficult because I want them to live the same life I live and yeah. want to afford them the opportunities. And then I think, am I really doing them a disservice? Do you have any, what advice would you give to dads or more broadly just parents out there around trying to instill that sense of curiosity and grit in your own kids? Get on TikTok first. Get on you TikTok You've got to be on TikTok. You've got to be on TikTok. Because you've got to understand how they're consuming information. Huh. And same with YouTube. So I'll give you a quick example. What would change my approach 180 degrees? It used to really bother me that my my oldest is a reader, but my my 15 and, and now 12-year-old weren't readers. Yeah. And I'm like, how else are you gonna learn? How is she gonna learn? Then I got on TikTok because I, I like to get on I've all- seen you on there. That was horrifying. I saw you on TikTok <laughs> dancing with your daughter. And I'm like, oh my God, this this Come medium on, has man. jumped, this medium has jumped the shark. Jumped the shark, right? Um, but it wasn't so much that. So I had this conversation with my son. And yeah. one day he came to me and we're talking about something on Shark Tank. I'm like, you don't watch Shark Tank. He goes, well, somebody put it on TikTok. Right. And he, he's like, I had a question about gross margin. I'm like, you know what gross margin is? He goes, and I'm like, what's gross margin? He goes, it's the difference between your cost of goods sold and, and your sales price. What's left over is gross margin. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where did you learn this? He's like, TikTok. Right. I mean, you learned that on TikTok. And then I started asking more questions and he answered them correctly. I'm like, okay, I was wrong. 
right? It's not that you can't learn on TikTok. It's just that I didn't know you could learn on TikTok. And just like my parents were worried about me, you know, finding the playboys and in mm-hmm. reading things and, mm-hmm. you know, that I shouldn't read and all this and that. Sure, there's going to be stuff on all platforms that are mm-hmm. concerning and, and it's really hard to to protect your kids against it. But at the same time, parents, I think, need to understand how kids learn today because mm-hmm. it's different. It's changing professional sports. How a 27-year-old consumes information is night and day different than a 20 or 21 or 22-year-old because that 27-year-old was just, you know, hitting their stride um, as Instagram was was becoming popular and TikTok wasn't even there. The mm-hmm. 20 and 21-year-old, they're Instagram and TikTok natives, and that's all they've ever known with their friends and, you know, all the, you know, you and I can talk about the same song and the same movie Mm-hmm. They talk about the same TikTok video. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand that world and if you don't understand what's out there, you're going to have a hard time understanding what ticks for your kids. So we're going to do a lightning round here. First thing that pops into mind, and these are questions that just pop into my mind. So last Fire piece away. last piece of content you absorbed that, that kind of struck you. Succession last night. Succession, like, Please yeah. don't let my family ever be like that. Yeah, I love that show too. Uh, I hate all of them and want to have sex with all of them at the same time. Um, <laughs> what what piece of content kind of changed your life? When I was 16, reading um, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. It just showed me that people can be an individual. Now, that doesn't make me, you know, an Ayn Rand, cons- you know. Conservative, right. I get it. We right, get it. Acolyte or believer, but it really motivated yeah, the good Ayn Rand. Um, and then yeah. what about um, thing you'd want to change most about yourself? Thing you're working on? Um, just being a better listener, because I've always been go, 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 go. Um, and, and with three kids, I've got to go, go slow, 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 slow. And that's hard for me. A moment where you thought you couldn't get out of the ditch? Um, I guess I had a really close friend die a couple of years ago, and that was really painful um, and really difficult for me. And then my dad died not long after that, so that was a tough period. Episode, uh, biggest person who had the biggest influence on your life? My dad. Yeah, it's not even close. Yeah, what just, was it? What was it about that? Was it time? Was it uh, his discipline? What was it about that no, relationship? It was the opposite. It was the encouragement and the fact that you know he put no limits on me. He was he was always I couldn't do it, Mark, but I know you can. And don't ever let anything stop you. And just if you put in the work, anything is possible. I think we should leave it there. Mark Cuban is an entrepreneur and investor. He's one of the main sharks on ABC Shark Tank, and he's also the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. Um, best-selling author, multiple <laughs> patent holder. Um, in 2006, Mark established ShareSleuth, the research and investigation yeah, you site. you don't have to go through all that. They, they can just Google me if they want Okay, that. fine. Well, hold on. Just shut the fuck up. It's my pod, Mark. <laughs> Mark gives back to the community that promotes his success through the Mark Cuban Foundation. The Foundation's AI Boot Camps Initiative hosts free introduction to AI Boot Camps for low-income high schoolers. Starting in Dallas, Mark also saved and annually funds the annual Dallas St. Patrick's Day Parade. <laughs> I did not know that. Yes. That means yep. you like alcohol. Anyways, the largest parade in Dallas in a city institution. He joins us from his home in Dallas. Mark, thanks for your good work and stay safe. Thanks. Appreciate that. Having me on, Scott. I really enjoyed it.
Algebra of happiness, you become what you pay attention to. And I found that I become more terse and more curt and immediately have sort of a knee-jerk reflexive reaction to almost anything based on who says it or where I see an opportunity to dunk on someone. And some, I become sort of the living embodiment of Twitter and I don't like it. Um, is that true? That's probably not true. It's probably a bit of an overstatement. But we have a tendency to kind of shoot and ask questions later. And I'm fascinated by what's going on with the Chappelle controversy around transgender rights and transphobia. And I think it's a lesson for us. I think this dialogue is really important. And that is, there is a conversation that needs to be had and should be had around, in some schools, there's contagion. That eight of the 15 girls in the class decide that they are uh, trans or that there are certain schools in certain states where a boy or a girl can decide they're going to go through transition and ask for hormones and their parents don't have to be notified. I think that is a conversation worth having around if there are any downsides there. I think there's a conversation worth having around the use of terms and pronouns and what role that plays and whether language should be so tightly and religiously protected that medical journals aren't allowed to use the term woman or man. I think that is a conversation we should have. And just bringing up the conversation, if you're a non-trans person, can often get you labeled as the enemy or a turf. Uh, I don't think that is a productive dialogue. At the same time, at the same time, uh, we have to recognize, or I think we should recognize, the trans community has taken a tremendous amount of bullshit or absorbed a tremendous amount of bullshit and hate and hostility because a lot of people, just as they thought about gay people or just as they thought about people of color, uh, don't have as much interaction with them and, quite frankly, just aren't as comfortable with them and, as a result, have an easier time discriminating against them. And this is a community that has endured violence and discrimination and has not been able to pursue the American dream like most of us. And if you think of the American dream, simply put, as the ability to pursue liberty or life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and be who you are, be who you truly are and afford the same generosity and protections and liberties as the rest of us, the trans community has not had that. It feels like there is a need for both sides to acknowledge that we should move to dialogue before destruction. And I feel as if the ratio is totally out of whack. I think there is a moment to shame people. There is a moment to disagree. I think there is a moment to say that is an out-of-line thought. But we have a tendency to basically say, okay, uh, you've said this or you haven't surrendered to my narrative. You're the enemy. Netflix, we're going to go after you. Uh, Dave Chappelle, we're going to go after you. The trans community, we're going to go after you and make you look stupid or paint you in the worst possible light and continue this cycle of discrimination. That's not how a country moves forward. Progress is a function of conflict and debate. Let's have the conflict, let's have the debate, but let's be civil and let's move to dialogue, not destruction. Let's have 80%, 90% dialogue and 10% destruction. And I think there's a lesson in this for all of us, and it's something I'm trying to learn from. When I see Rand Paul say something, I immediately think, oh, that's fucking stupid. I don't even think about what he said. I think about the fact he said it. So I'm like, okay, that must be really stupid, and I'm immediately against it. And that's not the right viewpoint. I immediately move to destruction. I need to think about dialogue, even if it's a dialogue I have in my own mind. around What is he saying? What is he saying? It's important to have these conversations and create an environment where we value dialogue and don't move to destruction. 
Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. Or the fact that Chuck Todd still hasn't invited me on Meet the Press, I would fucking kill it on that program. I would kill it, literally. And who do they have? I mean, some of the people that are on Meet the Press, I would do so much better. And I'm ready. Put me in, Chuck. Call me. Call me. You have my cell. You have my cell. By the way, Chuck Todd claims he's from Miami. He's not. He's not. And I don't even think Chuck is his name. I think his name is Alistair, and he's from Maryland, and him and his wife, Emily, raise Labradoodles. And I think it's time for him to come out and, and tell us his true identity.